Well, thank, thank you all for showing up today for the Overland Journal podcast. We, we take advantage of the Overland Expo venue to connect with amazing travelers like Neil, and it gives us a, a chance to record the podcast here live. And sometimes we end up with folks that also stop by and visit along the way. So there'll be some questions that we'll open up for at the end. If you guys have any questions or insights that you'd like to gain from Neil and his travels, we'll go ahead and get started. Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I'm your host, Scott Brady, and I am here with renowned motorcycle adventure traveler, Neil Bailey. You can find him at Neil Bailey Rides, and we'll talk about other places where people can find out about your stories and adventures, but I want to thank you so much for taking the time today. I've followed your your adventures for many years, and I've always been so impressed with the thoughtfulness that you you bring to the things that you do. And even before we hit record, you were telling me about how you navigated the changes that came to your life from COVID. So thank you again for being on the podcast. Oh, no, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And a quick break from our podcast to talk about what makes this podcast possible. That's because of the Overland Journal print publication and the expeditionportal.com website but also because of our YouTube channel. If you go onto YouTube and you search for Expedition Portal, you'll not only see these weekly podcast interviews, but you'll also be able to check out all the other content that we produce, which includes video adventures, overlanding around the world. And you can also see us evaluate different vehicles, four-wheel drives and motorcycles and campers and trailers. You can also see our equipment reviews as well on individual overland gear. So check out the expeditionportal.com YouTube channel. Thanks. Let's do the deep dive right into that because I found that that's so interesting. We all kind of, we were in all kinds of different places on the world. I was somewhere in Africa. I think I was in Swaziland when it was all shutting down. Yeah. And you mentioned that you kind of woke up one day. And everything had changed. So talk about how that how that felt for you as an adventurer who's used to being able to go off to any far-flung corner of the planet. Uh, how did that change feel for you? Yeah, I'd been in um, Kenya, Tanzania, Zanzibar. We did a hiking trip in Kenya. I'd come back and was just head down, ass up, getting ready to head back to Peru. Not only was I getting ready to head back to Peru, but I had finally decided I was going to get a bit more professional about work. And I was working with a web editor and a, somebody who was actually laying out my tour itineraries other than just scratched on a piece okay. of paper and, hey, okay. you want to come with us? Let's go. <laughs> so I was, pouring, I was pouring money and resources into trying to make these trips a bit more professional and buying ads and building websites and doing all the stuff that sure. responsible people are supposed to do <laughs> and COVID hit. Yeah. And I was like, okay, that's it. So broke, no money, no tours, no speaking arrangements. No one wants to buy anything. So the first couple of weeks were just spent wandering around, staring at the sky. You know? yeah. yeah. It's pretty crazy when you just, you know, it's like no income, no way of earning a living, you know? Yeah. It was crazy. You've spent so much of your life as a traveler, which means that you live as a minimalist to begin with. So there's not much that you can cut when you're already living as a minimalist. So how did you, how did you adjust uh, mentally? Like what was, what was that transition for, for you from realizing things aren't going well to I'm going to find a new path? What was that transition for you? I don't know if it was a conscious decision. I mean, like you said, when you're a traveler, you're always used to 
nothing ever goes the way it's supposed to. So you're always having to have another plan. Yeah. So I had uh, run out of skill on my racetrack bike at one point a couple of years earlier and just wadded this thing up pretty badly and stuffed it in the corner. So I thought, well, you know, I could always pull it to bits and fix it and sell it, right? Sure. It's got to be worth something. So sure. really for a couple of weeks, I sat in the garage with a bag of sandpaper and some Bondo and some glue to sanding body panels and figuring if I could put this thing back together, at least it would, it would, I could earn some money and pay the bills. And then sure. I cleaned all my other bikes up and started going through stuff I could sell. And then one thing led to the other, and I had a couple of gigs came in, photography stuff, you know, just scratching around as usual. And then the bike project turned into a bike project. Someone said, oh, I'll paint it. Someone said, I'll do some graphics. Someone said, I'll buy a story. And slowly I just started going. And then I set up a YouTube studio, tried to think, let's do a YouTube channel. Then I decided to pull my old vintage bike out and see if we could start making a project on that. And one of my magazine editors said, Hey, I'll buy a couple of stories about that. So on we went. And it was just, you know, it was just complete dumb luck. And and the crazy part about the way my life works is the story for the vintage bike ended up going on the Revzilla website. It ended up on a Facebook page in England. And somebody I hadn't seen in 25 years found it, sent it to another buddy of mine who I hadn't seen in 26 years. And the last time I'd seen him had been in Romania. On, I was on a motorcycle trip. Okay. And he was running casinos for a Turkish gangster out of Istanbul. And as people do. As people do, you know. And then I, all I really knew is he'd been kidnapped by the Russians and he was riding high-powered Ducatis in Italy. And I didn't know very much about him at all. And he tracked me down and somehow he'd end up becoming the royal photographer for the King of Sharjah. <laughs> as you do, right? Yeah. Now, this is a guy I used to drop acid and steal with when we were kids and he used to ride on that motorcycle the one that you were were restoring yeah oh fantastic he used to ride on the back of when we were kids i mean it was it was fast it was good for good for drug deals you could get away right so he calls you and goes hey do you want to come out to the middle east and do some media for me and you know i was like that's a paycheck i'll go (laughs) so somehow you survive right yeah you kind of opened yourself up to all the possibilities and one of the ones that you mentioned was that you picked up riding a bicycle again. I was always riding bicycles, but I really got into it. Yeah. So tell me how that experience was. Were you doing touring off the bike or you were just trying to get really fit or what was it? Just a bit of both. Yeah. Uh, I started riding with this guy and we started doing these things and he turned around to me when he goes, yeah, we do this ride every year. We ride 200 miles in a day. I'm like 200 miles in a day on a bicycle. You've got to be out of your mind. Right. And he said, so he is out of his mind. So I said, well, that seems like something to do. So that gave me months of training. I just, you know, sitting on a bicycle every day, just beating yeah, myself. And then one day I got on a bike and I rode 200 miles in 15 hours. So I was like, okay, we've done that. So now we need to do something else. So yeah. <laughs> something always happens, right? And it, would you say that that is, that is what inspires you to do these things? Is it's, it's difficult, it challenges you, and it exposes you to a new experience? You've or, got to. If you're not, yeah. I mean, if you're not. People think that cycling is a physical activity. It's a mental activity. Mm. It's understanding your mind when your mind wants to quit and you need to go or you're out somewhere. One of my best cycling experiences was I just completely imploded coming off a mountain one time. No cell signal, no water, Mm. no food, getting dark, miles from anywhere, completely cramping up and not able to move. And suddenly that joy comes where you just realize you're so 
right? <laughs> and somehow you figure it out and you get on your bicycle and you get out of it. So I think it's always been like that for me. Yeah. It's probably the same for you, right? You, you get it, right? In many of those ways. I mean, I did used to do triathlons and I look back and I thought I was really quite the masochist. I was. I yeah, it's not physical. Pain. It's I enjoyed, the, the, it's, it's I enjoyed the challenge of overcoming myself. Yeah, yeah, because it's always you against you. It's not the thing you're doing. Yeah. And that's certainly the healthiest way to go about it is challenging yourself against yourself. When you make it too competitive with others, I think you lose the script. Yeah, we'll always lose what I. <laughs> Fair enough. I think it was, the, it was the same for me. So let's start earlier on. Let's start uh, maybe right before using the motorcycles for getting away from the drug deals. Where did you grow up in the world? Grew up in, grew up in Southern England. Okay. In Devonshire. Okay. And we were all products of Margaret Thatcher's England. So okay. 15% unemployment nationally, which if you think about it, doesn't blanket a country of 15% unemployment. Yeah. You have 50% unemployment here, you have 10 over here, 60 over there, three over there. So our town was really depressed and there was no work. Mm -hmm. So you basically ended up with a lot of really energetic young kids with bright minds with nothing to do. So of course, that's, we did things. <laughs> you found a way to be industrious. Yeah, you had to. And, you know, so yeah, we just, we just did what we did to get by really. Cause I mean, the, I mean, I came, I, I scratched together some money, got on my Honda 125 and decided we, my friend and I were going to go around the world. So we got on all 125s and we went to the Channel Islands because <laughs> there was work there. And I remember there was a, a copper on the thing. He goes, if you've come here looking for work, lads, he goes, you'll drink all your money in a week and go home. So thankfully we did it in a week and we were home, hung over with no money. Right? It didn't work. And I came back and thought, I better get some gainful employment. And I went for a job at a petrol station. It was part-time job, 26 hours a week. And there was a line around the corner and out the door. And I just gave the lady and the thing a bit of lip service on the way in. And she remembered me and gave me the job. And I was able to get a part-time job. And it was that hard. Because people think, oh, you can always get a job. I mean, you couldn't. So, you know, we used to collect unemployment, put roofs on. I mean, you were always just on the hustle to get something together. It was a, it was a very hard time for, the, for my society. And what did you learn about yourself through that process of not being able, I mean, not being able to get a job would be terrible. How much I loved taking drugs. It was great. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And it's funny how everybody's always in rehab now mm -hmm. and moaning and complaining. I mean, I haven't done drugs in decades, but you know what? I had such a good time. It was fantastic. <laughs> you made the best of the situation. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, who wants to go to work when you can get high all day, right? It all just seemed a bit crazy. So eventually that adventure led to you starting to travel. So you just Yes, yeah, so I finally scratched some money together and got to America. Okay. And I hitchhiked around America, New York to um, Quebec, Quebec to Rocky Mountains, bought a car, drove down the West Coast, mm. sold our car in Watts. That was exciting. Um, hitchhiked on, ended up in a, I don't know if we'll let's say whorehouse on this podcast, but it was a place where ladies go to do things. So we went to- You already said whorehouse, so. <laughs> <laughs> it was purely a cultural visit to see how it works, right? Then from San Diego to Miami, then to Bradenton, and then I got a job working, putting roofs on, mm -hmm. and I had a fairly ambitious roommate, and uh, his goal was to rob a bank. So um, a couple of days before the robbery, I thought it might be wise to leave the country. So I left the country, flew to Belize. Good choice. Yeah, it was, I thought it was all right. And then got to southern Belize and was like, you know, well, let's move on here. Ended up in Guatemala. And of course, it was during the time period of the Sundays to control what was going on. So sure. Central America at that point was quite crazy. And it goes in and out of that. 
Still today, oh, it's it's still not a safe place know, to yeah. travel. Yeah. yeah. So that was my travel life really kicked off. No motorcycles at that point because I was too poor. <laughs> you were backpacking or whatever. Backpacking, buses, hitchhiking, yeah, yeah, sure. whatever, whatever method you could. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and what an interesting way to start your travels because it set the the stage for you being able to travel by any means. Well, I had already hitchhiked around Europe a couple of times as a teenager. You know, just got sure. on got on the boat, got to France, and disappeared for a couple of months with a backpack. Sure. Which, when I think back on it now, you imagine how parents are always checking their kids on a phone. I mean, oh, bye, mother, I'm leaving. You know, and that two or three months later, you'd show up looking anemic, and <laughs> and maybe you sent a, cu- a couple postcards. Along maybe the way. if you were lucky. Yeah, for sure. So I'd already done the hitchhiking in Europe when I got to America. And then, when did motorcycles begin to be a part of? Your travels. They had always been in it. So I'd sold a motorcycle to go to London to work. I really, it was quite interesting how it got my charity work going because I had gone and volunteered in a school for abandoned and uh, emotionally disturbed children. And I worked for seven months. It was like a full time house parent gig. And I'd bought a motorcycle for that while I was there from doing gardening work and stuff. So I sold so I sold the one motorcycle to get to there, and then I sold that motorcycle to go to Europe. So I always had bikes. I always had this dream of riding on a motorcycle. And of course we grew up reading Ted Simon, Jupiter's Trap. Sure. Helga Pedersen, Ten Years on Two Wheels. Sure. Run off the ends to the ends of the earth. We had all these travel books. So we were just so broke. You know, we had to hitchhike. It was the only way of getting along. Yeah. Well, and, and those three gentlemen that you just mentioned are iconic. I mean, I mean, started a whole, yeah, yeah. I mean, half of this is here because of, because of those. No, no question. Yeah. They certainly inspired me as well. I mean, and you think about how much easier travel is today. The motorcycles are so much better. We we never really get, we never really get lost. You can connect with other travelers so easily. It's a bit of a shame. We were in Namibia once on a ride and you know, you're sort of going across the corrugated, dusty things and the low mountains and the natives. And, you know, you're just feeling like, you know, you're feeling a bit like surround off all to yourself, sure. right? And you pull over and you can hear the bikes ticking with the heat. And then there's some guy, no, honey, the trash goes out on Wednesdays. <laughs> and you look around, there's some dude talking to his missus at home on the cell yeah. phone. It's like, you just ruined my Namibia experience. Thank you. <laughs> And I think that that ship has so sailed, although there are there are still places that we can have those kinds of experiences, which leads me to ask you about your recent experience in the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I followed some of your travels, and I thank you for sending the little updates that you did to me as well. Oh, yeah, it, yeah. it gave me a real insight to what, what you were looking to accomplish. So share with the listeners about what made you decide to go to the Ukraine during the war with Russia in Ukraine right now. And what were your goals while you were there? And, and what did you learn about yourself and that conflict? I mean, the, the backstory really is I started my foundation, Wellspring International Outreach in 2008. And it was with a goal to raise money for the underserved, abandoned children around the world. So our main project was in Peru. Uh, we've done projects in Kenya and in South Africa. And it's really about raising money for kids. Sure. And then by 2013, when I did my big TV show, Neil Bailey Rides, it was an idea of amalgamating adventure motorcycle traveling with philanthropy. So rather than just them being separate things you did to put them together so yeah. you can ride around on your motorcycle and give something back. Yeah. So that was the idea. So I had this backstory of raising money. And of course, during COVID, it was very difficult to raise money. Mm. And it was difficult to go to visit our projects. 
And back to my nitwit mate who ended up running the world's biggest photography exhibition in Sharjah, he invited me out on two, two occasions to do the media. So suddenly I'm with Steve McCurry, who photographed Afghan girl, James yeah. Nakaway. Incredible. I mean, this is, you know, Mohammed Mohosen, two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, um, Chris Rainier, Brent Sturton. I mean, Claire Thomas, who did this amazing work in Iraq. And I'm around a lot of conflict photographers. And it just starts to get your mind thinking in a different direction. Maybe I, you know, I always looked at raising money for orphans and abandoned kids. I hadn't thought a lot about war. It had been decades since I'd been through a war. Sure. And Kieran Ridley was one of the gentlemen that I met and interviewed at Exposure. And we got on really, really well. And of course, this year, as we were leaving Exposure, the war was just getting ready to kick off. Mm. So a lot of the people I was at dinner with, James Nackaway, Paula Bronstein, Heidi Levine, Jana and all of these people, you probably see them on CNN and Fox and different channels from inside Ukraine. They were all getting ready to tool up to go to Ukraine. Mm. Um, some were going to Afghanistan. So it was very much in my mind. And then a few days after the war broke out, Kieran called me from Lviv and he was riding old Chinese motorcycle. It was really unreliable. And there was 30 kilometer long lines of refugees trying to get out. So he figured out that with the motorcycle, he could get past the lines and do some of the work that you've seen. And, and I'm really proud to announce he has actually just won a world award for his photography. It's a Gala Pulix award for his pro-democracy work in Hong Kong. Some of the stuff that he's done in the Paris riots, but predominantly for Ukraine. Okay. So it's really, really a big, I don't know, it's, I feel really good about that. The, yeah. the, the trip we took enabled him to get award-winning work, you know, which I think makes it more powerful for us. But back to Kieran, so he's, you know, he's having bike troubles, he's getting hustled at the checkpoints because everybody's just on tender hooks. You know, is he a spy? They're going through his memory cards. I mean, they're shaking him down. It's freezing cold. They're killing journalists. His wife's giving him it in the ear. He's got six-month-old twins. Mm. And I just got off the phone with him, and I'm just like, you know, everybody has an opinion about the war. Right. And their opinions are from their chair. Right. What about the people actually there doing it? You know, and I know these people. I've met that these people. And I was just like, I gotta go. And I gotta go and see what they're doing and why are they doing it, you know, and just see what's actually happening. And that it was just it was such a quick decision. And I said, Hey Karen, I'll get some bikes, let's go back. Let's tell these stories. And then that developed into a saying, well, look, there's a lot of, lot of stories about the destruction and the, you know, the violence and the bombing and, and death and destruction. But what, about, what else is going on inside Ukraine? What can we find maybe that's a little different so that as Western media gets bored and it can stale to keep watching people being blown up, we can just maybe keep things going a bit. Well, and that's one of the biggest challenges is making sure that that, that fight that they're in for their lives and their country remains top of mind so that continue to put pressure on politicians to support their efforts. And the intention, of course, is not to be political in that statement. It's just the reality of the fact yeah, that there's yeah. a war in Ukraine yeah. that they didn't ask for and they need our help and everyone's help that can provide it. It is hard to, to understand why it could be a, when you watch, when you see what's happening there, like how can you, how can you look at this and have different ideas based on political opinion. This is humanity. This is humans. This is what's happening, you know? And that, it, it, I think it, because it is a human issue, um, there's going to be humans with other intentions that are going to try to influence the opinions of others. 
through all kinds of means that are effective and not effective, but we see it around social media trying to shape people's views of this. But I appreciate you being there. And I think that the reason why it's relevant to the podcast and it's relevant to travel is that we can end up in these areas. Um, we can, and you may have some stories to share. Um, I'll share one quickly, but I was trying to go from Tajikistan into Kyrgyzstan and the border was closed. And I find out the border's closed because there's a conflict in the south of the country. And it took me days to finally get in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I spoke with folks in the US that had some good answers for me. Uh, but it was so isolated to this one area that we we just went around it and the gas stations were still open. The f- restaurants, were, I mean, every the country was running, but this at the end of the Fargana Valley, it was it was a it was a war going on. And oftentimes as travelers, we can get ourselves into these conflict zones um, or even w- war-torn countries unintentionally or something kicks off when we're there. It's just a good idea to get as much information as you can and find out where it is safe because the entire country doesn't, doesn't happen all at once. And there are safe places to go and there are channels of communication that you can use to get out safely even with your vehicle, where else have you traveled where you've encountered that kind of, of situation? And how did you handle that yourself? Well, just Central and South America when I was a kid during yeah. the Sandinista Contra War. Uh, that was I just local knowledge gets you through. I mean, there was times I was in the wrong place and just got lucky. Yeah. And I think when you're young and dumb, you don't think about it. Sure. And then I got myself into a bit of trouble with the Turk, Turkish and the Kurds in Eastern Turkey. Mm-hmm. A few times, just getting in over my head and being in the wrong places, and maybe just dumb luck got me out of that, and then finally moved moved further west and got away from it. And then this this was the first, I think, intentional time that I went to cover something. And and what did you? Because you've you've put so much effort through Wellspring to to support these abandoned and at need children, which I'm sure has changed you as a person in so many ways. And I'd love to hear you speak to that. But also, I'd like to know how going to the war in Ukraine and experiencing it firsthand changed your view about yourself or others? What did you learn from that experience? I mean, that's a good question. I don't know. It just, I want to do more of the same. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I don't have that long left on planet earth. I've had a big chunk of the years and I've got to do something with them and I've had everything. What do I need? I mean, I don't need any more, but if I can use my time to help people that need something, then that will mean something to me. And, and certainly to them. Yeah. And, you know, the people are just so amazing and so incredible. I think that I think, you, you know, you get so much from that when you see what they're going through and you see how stoic they are and how hard they're working and how much they appreciate it. They're very, very appreciative of Western arms and munitions and aid. I mean, yeah. really appreciative. And thank you every day for what the American people are doing and what the British people and European people sure. are doing. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It was a, so it was just, I mean, for me, it was just, I don't know, more of the same and really just, a, I hate to say it's a fantastic experience, but it was a fantastic experience just to, to, to see what people are doing and seeing how they're surviving. Mm. And then you just to be driving down the road and you're going past just destroyed properties and buildings and, you know, you smell it. Obviously, I'm sure people that have been in war zones would be able to relate to the smell of everything, you know, and then, Suddenly there's a house and there's an old lady putting flowers out and there's a guy painting the stoop outside. Mm. And it's almost like the Ukrainians saying, nope, we're going forward. We're, yeah. we're, we're cleaning up. We're on it. And even when you would go in after a missile strike, 
within hours they're cleaning up. Everything's getting cleaned up. It's, it's like, we're not going to let this sit. We're going to get in here and do the best we can. So Incredible to see their resolve. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about Wellspring because I think it's really important to know how, how I can help how Overland Journal and Expedition Portal can help, and then how our audience can help support uh, what you're doing uh, with these kids. We chose to support the Children's Hospital in Lviv um, because we've always done children, and we had a good connection. Kieran had gone in there for, I think it was the Daily Mail, he'd done a big story about a little girl called Sophia. And um, yeah, she had the top of her head blown off with shrapnel, and the, the shrapnel went through her head and down her brain and left her pretty messed up. And somehow on a motorcycle, they got her out, they got to Lviv. The problem with the hospital in Lviv is they don't know how to deal with children who are victims of war. Mm. Like, they're not set up to deal with amputations, bullet wounds, shrapnel wounds, burns. The things that maybe some places that are used to soldiers coming in like that. Like, who trains pediatricians to work sure. on those things in children? So they're, they're suffering greatly with the inability to deal with the injuries that the children have. So they're bringing surgeons in from around the world to kind of audit and sit in and they watch them do surgeries. So we just figured that's got to be our place to, you know, to, to put our, our limited amount of money we can raise. So if anyone wants to donate to us, it's all just going to go straight to them. So how do they, how do our listeners or the people that are just, here? Just do Wellspring, wellspring-outreach.org. Okay. Wellspring-outreach.org. Yeah. And we have a donate button. You can donate monthly or you can do a... A big, big donation. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, it's, it's really, it's really important yeah. that we all find a way to help. I'm really proud of the work that you're doing, and I think it's, it's so important that as an industry, as an overland industry, that we continue to look for ways to use our skills and our talents, our audiences, yeah. and our resources uh, to make a difference for the people that we encounter along our travels. And I think that was for us. I mean, it's like, you know, I'm a motorcycle journalist. I mean, I've done, I've done stories for your magazine and, and thank you for that. It's like, you know, I was able to get bikes. BMW gave us some bikes, which I thought actually on hindsight, that was pretty good of them. It's yeah, like, sure. Hey, we get a couple of bikes. We're going to Ukraine. Yeah, no yeah. problem. Here you go. You know, yeah. just please bring them back. Right. Yeah, sure. I was just imagine calling Oleg. I'm, I'm really, <laughs> yeah. you're never going to believe Oleg. <laughs> Sorry to say, I, I've got the handlebars, you know, <laughs> yeah. and then, you know, Revit gave us some gear and the ride gave us some helmets and yeah. that was a real help. And uh, so I just thought as a motorcycle journalist, you know, that's what we can do in our space. And, yeah. you know, we met people, the medical people, you know, builders. I mean, I think we just have to do what we can do. Sure. So, and I figured that if we were able to, this is exactly what I had envisaged going in, was that we would be able to talk to different audiences. Like we're motorcyclists and travelers, where maybe the news is very focused on sort of destruction and, and whatever. Sure. Not saying there's anything wrong with that, but it's like this gave us a more unique opportunity from one of us, so to speak, being in there, giving a report of what we found. And we did really, really, I thought this fantastic. So we went into a 70s era coal mine and nothing changed since the 70s. And, you know, writing little ledges and they give you this little container and they give you this quick safety brief if there's gas. Apparently, you can last 50 minutes if you're panicking and two hours if you stay calm. Oh, wow. You know, that's true in most things of life. <laughs> so we're like, yeah, okay, right. So we stick this in here. And they gave us a little light and off we went down the mine. But the thing is, it's a really important story because, you know, with Russians taking over Donbass, they've got most of the coal. Sure. And the Western uh, Lviv region has a lot of coal mines. And so 
all of these miners and everybody there really felt that they're on the energy front. They're fighting the war. Yeah. And they have limited capacity because a lot of the miners are away at the front. They've lost a lot of miners. They have pictures for the ones that haven't made it. So they're, that's their way of fighting the war. So I think it was a relevant story that you might not think about. Yeah. And then we spent a day at a, an equine therapy center with amputees, all young men that had just lost limbs. One of them, Daniel, four weeks earlier. Wow. You know, so they're just off the front line. Sasha Lee that runs it, her husband was actually on the front line. He's suffers badly from PTSD from other periods of time during the war. You know, she noticed how much the horses were helping. So we were, isn't isn't that isn't it dogs and horses are the only two emotional support animals? Yeah. I think so. Certainly not cats. Yeah. <laughs> so it was really fantastic. And the the stories that we heard, and you know, again, I I haven't been home long enough and settled long enough to really dig in like the story that you read in Ride is more of a we went here and went there and sure. one of the young lads Antonov he had been in Mariupol during the you know well the Azov Steel thing but he was on the other side he'd gone in on February the 24th or 23rd I think and on May the 11th he broke out with his he was the commander of his group and he took a bullet in the arm because they slap a tourniquet on it 230 kilometers over eight days they had to walk to get out because they're right into Donetsk, so they're in popular territory. They needed to get into Zaporizhia to get back to the Ukrainian thing. And the whole time he's doing it, his arm is just dying. Yeah, sure. And so he's chain-smoking because the smell's so disgusting. Yeah. And then they get there, and they've got to lop it off at the shoulder. And this guy led his people out. And you know, we were just hearing stories like this every day. So these we want to tell at greater length. We have photographs of them. Mm-hmm. So that these were days were quite amazing. And the following day, one of the stories that was really, really special to me, we went to a monastery, 16th century monastery. Well, the Soviets had whitewashed everything and made it a mental asylum until 91 when they got their independence, or 90s when they got their independence. But during the Second World War, they had hidden Jewish boys in there mm. from the Holocaust. And our fixer that we were working with at Lviv had been making a recreated documentary about the lives of these three boys. And all... Each one of these three boys that he was working with in this recreation documentary had gone on to do something really special in the world. Members of finance for the Polish government, you know, big in banking, but all really had made a contribution in their life to the world in general. And he was right in the middle of creating this this documentary about their lives when the war broke out. And then we suddenly realized there was between 50 and 100 refugees there. Yeah, and of sure. course, we couldn't say anything because if we say something, they could be bombed. So we're not allowed to give out information, which, by the way, that's the hardest thing. When you look at these little kids yeah. playing and think if you said the wrong thing, someone would bomb them. That's really, you can see a lot of shit, but that just does your head in. Hopefully when the war is over and things are settled down, I think that could be this most incredible documentary to tie those two together. 80 years apart, the monks are doing exactly the same thing as they did during the Second World War. Incredible. And I think it's a story that, to me, that's an, it's a story that could be inspiring out of a really bad situation. Yeah. So we weren't just going to bomb out buildings and, and stuff like that. No, I appreciate you doing what you did. One of the things that I wanted to talk to you about in you have this, uh, an impressive resume as a traveler. You've been to over 80 countries. You've essentially motorcycled around the world. Let's talk a little bit about some things that you would, you would share with a new rider that wanted to go around the world. What would you recommend them think about uh, when they're getting ready to go out on their own journey, like Neil Bailey, and go around the world? Well, just start small, you know? Small bike? Yeah, small, small bike, trip. small trip, yeah. yeah. 
and go get your feet wet and come back and go get your feet wet and come back. And because mm-hmm. if you don't like it, you can stop, right? <laughs> and you haven't invested too much money. Right. Because when my buddy and I decided to go around the world on our 125s and went to the Channel Islands, they put a big thing in the newspaper, you know, paint and lads off to see the world, you know. And we're home a week later with a hangover. It was, kind of, it was, it was a bit embarrassing because we didn't make it. So, so don't make a big fuss about it, you know. Uh, well, you eventually made that happen, though. And you, and you did <laughs> took, get to see. It took a few years, you know. Yeah, and I think don't – I would turn the phone off and quit the social media and stop looking for sponsorship and stop trying to get people to pay you to do it. I would go out, get two jobs, work your ass off, save your money so you got your own money, your own bike, train yourself to stay at a restaurant, stay at a pub, buy all the secondhand camp out and just go yeah learn to tell a good story people put you up in the house and they'll feed you and thank you for eating all the food and dirtying the sheets when you leave (laughs) that's right and just go you know don't make it it doesn't have to be a tv show or an instagram program that's very true and what's interesting is if you do your travels that way you when you come back it can be much like you've made a career out of you come back now with a great story you don't owe anybody anything you don't have sponsorship livery all over yourself and your motorcycle. And you can now sell these stories to magazines and to other outlets that help you recover. And especially with people like with a magazine like yours. I mean, you know, subscribe to your magazine, look at the photographs and say, that's the quality of work I want to do. It's the most difficult thing for us as a publication is yeah. to meet that level of quality. Yeah, fine. I mean, set your stall out. That was something, you know, traveling with Kieran, Kieran Ridley, you know, it's like... like it is insane to watch these photographers work. And I had such a fly on the wall thing. And you wonder, is it, are they just like really lucky or do they make their luck? I don't know how they do it. They, he just seems to be able to put these ingredients together to make these award-winning pictures. And we were in Irpin one day and really badly bombed out buildings. And suddenly there's a lady with a parasol breastfeeding a baby on the curb, you know, and he's in the middle of the road. So I quickly run out to stand next to him to, you know, cause the cars are going by. And, you know, if you saw the backstory, you see the picture is so dramatic. It's this beautiful lady breastfeeding a baby with a parasol with a completely destroyed building in the background. And I just think to myself, how does he, I guess that's just 25 years of finding the moment, you know? So for young kids, don't think you're going to make those pictures, but just keep shooting and, Set yourself a standard. Read National Geographic. Read your magazine. Follow these people and say, what are they doing to make these great images? And it's the same thing for travelers. You can't expect to do your first trip and to travel in the way that you do with the open mind that you do and the experience. You know when to turn left and when to turn right and when to Do you think so? (laughs) Oftentimes. Oftentimes, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, maybe you've slowed down a little bit, you know, so after the after the accident on the racetrack. But I think that when I look at someone that's coming new to travel, it's it's just encouraging them to continue to experiment and continue to learn because it will come with time and you'll feel a lot more confident. And then you're going to be willing to have that conversation with the local on the street. You're going to be comfortable going home. That takes confidence to poke your nose in. And what was really interesting with Kieran is like, I I like face shots and and I do galleries and I've done magazines where I really like, but I tend to use a long lens when I'm doing people's faces. He always shoots wide angle. And uh, Fix Andre, we were talking about him the other day. Like, so he's always like absolutely up in people's face. He can't be back here for stuff because he shots. She's the 16 to 35 and the 70 to um, 24 to 70. Longest lens he's got is 70. Doesn't carry anymore, right? And suddenly he gets up there and 
he's shooting away, right? Because he shoots multiple frames. And it's like they suddenly become hypnotized. I don't know what he does to them. He just hypnotizes them and they just stand there and do everything he wants. And and 20 minutes later, you're like, is he going to stop here in a minute? <laughs> you know? But that's what he does. It, yeah. it is really. And that I think is like, that's decades of, and how he moves. And I don't know, like when he's walking through something, he's not pushing any air. He just has a way of moving through things that's not like most people would walk through. I don't know. It, it, it was really interesting to study him yeah. creating these images. And it probably helps him disarm people a little bit where they're not so concerned or they're not taking on a different expression. Yeah, and even people that didn't want to be photographed. Yeah, sure. You know, I mean, they didn't want to be photographed and now they do, you know, yeah. so, you know, because I think about how many times you've had your camera and someone's like throwing a rock at you yeah. telling you to get out. Well, it is always a good idea to make sure that you're getting people's permissions, you know, just like we wouldn't want to be sitting in a restaurant and someone walk up and start taking photographs of us at a table. It's a good idea. In fact, it's critical as travelers that we that we do ask for permission. Uh, maybe a, a journalist in that scenario, it's a little different. But since we're there recreating as travelers, we need to make sure that we're asking people for their permission to take a photograph. One of the things that we love to ask in the podcast is, and this is a selfish question because I love to read. So favorite books, and, and I know that you've been involved with books yourself. So what are some of your favorite volumes that you've read in your life, the most influential books that you've, and it doesn't have to do anything with travel, but what are some of the ones that come to mind? Books that you love? It's all a bit typical, sadly. I mean, Ted Simon, Jupiter's Travels. Yeah. I mean, I've probably only read that seven times. So, To the Ends of the Earth by Sorano Fiennes, which yeah. I think is, if any young person wanted to learn how to do anything in life to do with eventual travel, it's like everything in that book will prepare you for travel. Just the tenacity you know, convincing people to volunteer. And the fact that he his expedition grew to the point where there was a, a part where they needed a captain for an ice-breaking ship. And there's a handful of men in the world can drive pilot or whatever you do with an ice-breaking ship. And they command phenomenal salaries. And they needed him for like two and a half years. Sure. So there was no budget. So our boy Ranulph talks him into quitting his job and driving the boat for free. Well, you got to think about that. Yeah. Why it meant it, it meant more than a paycheck to be part of the Transglobe expedition, yeah. and I, so I think that's why that book is so valuable to young travelers to elevate yourself above the going to work and making a paycheck and buying. You know, you can being involved with something. So that yeah. was I've read that numerous times. And the trans the Transglobe is an incredible expedition for those that haven't. There won't be that. another one like yeah. that. I don't think anyone yeah, could do very difficult with the changing conditions in the north. Well, Heidel, all of his books, Contiki and Ra. Yeah, Contiki's great. There's a, it's a great book. There's a fantastic book, The Brendan Voyage, Tim Severin. And I like these books where it was like he, he wanted to prove that the Irish monks were the first ones to get to the new land. And if you actually go into cathedrals in Europe, I've seen it in Sweden and different places around, there's actually murals on the wall of, of St. Brendan's voyages. And they look like fables, but he actually set out to prove that they were real. They built a leather-hulled coracle and they made it to the new world in it. So these were the sort of books I've always been very influenced. Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic book. And and you, if you want to dip your toes into Sir Ranulph Fiennes and his life, Mad, Bad, and Dangerous to Know is another. Oh, is it? I got to read that. Yeah, it's a, it's yeah. a good. One. Just don't cut your fingers off and oh, shed, well, right? That whole <laughs> that whole story is in there, and it's fan, it's fan, it's fantastic. Yeah, when you don't want to go to the doctor and you have frostbitten fingers, you just hack it off. Oh, just go to the shed with a hacksaw and take the end. <laughs> it's in that book. So mad, bad, and dangerous to know. It sounds like you are another 
mad, bad, and dangerous to know guy. So it's just a, just a nitwit (laughs) stumbling around. It's been such a pleasure that one of the things I wanted to ask too, is there, is there anything that you'd like to ask of our audience? Is there any way that we can support you and your efforts? And then how do people find out more about you? I think just, you know, my my goal is for us to understand how much we have and what we can do to help and why it's important. And I think it's a really difficult question. Why should we help Ukraine? Why should we help anybody? But I think if we understood how good we could feel by doing something to help, and we don't have to do a lot, we can do a little to help. I think that would be my goal and then help educate young people to think a little differently. I, my next big talk will be in a high school and the high school wants to, they raise money for me. And I think if we could help educate these kids not to look at the children of Ukraine, like these poor little Ukrainians that need help. These are our buddies and they need something. And if we were out with our mate and we were on a motorcycle and he got a flat tire or he didn't have something to eat, you'd give him, you'd give him a protein bar and your spare tube, right? Yeah, sure. You wouldn't look down on him and think he needed something. You would just do something to balance that and you'd feel good about it. And that's yeah. what, if we could be more like that about charity, because we have so much. So anyway, that would be my hope. So yeah, any more money, any money we can make for them. You know, we went to see a little boy called Leo and he's at, he was at the Lviv Children's Hospital. And he'd been in Kharkiv, and his mother had been away in Poland working, single mother. So he was there with his grandmother, and the shelling started. And about a week or 10 days into it, they were hiding out in the school. The sad part about it is, as you talk to these refugees that have experienced that, they, get to, they can tell the sound of different missiles and different bombs. That's what they learn. They know what incoming is, what it sounds, what, oh, that's that type of missile, this type of missile. And Amazingly, his mother was able to get back in there, no cell reception, no phones, and find him. She went to their apartment and got their legal documents, and within an hour of leaving, her apartment was blown to bits. She found Leo. They got out. Getting out was harder than what they'd been through because they were shelling them all the way out, and a lot of people with them didn't make it out, and they made it out. And the trauma has left him unable to walk. And he was a soccer captain, you know, a tough little 11-year-old kid. We've seen pictures of him leading his soccer team. And he's had to have some surgery in Lviv. And we had this afternoon with him. And as he was leaving and he's rolling back to his room, the airstrike warning goes off. And you just look at this kid and you realize like, he's been through all of this. And he's still not safe. Like, it could, just like that, we've all been gone, you know, and that's that's really hard. Yeah. You know, that's tough. And that's why, you know, the more money we can raise to that hospital to help these kids. Luckily, I think America's passed a law. These kids can come here now and get treatment, which is fantastic, you know. Well, I appreciate so much what you've done. Well, thank you very much for having me and having a chance to, to share this with you. So people can follow you on Instagram. Yeah, or Neil Rides. Yeah, Neil Bailey Rides. Yeah, my name's super easy to find. It's N E A L E B A Y L Y. I might tell you I'm the only one. <laughs> you are. You are. There's no else spells. It's pretty like that. pretty easy to find. Yeah, so it's quite easy to find. So it's Instagram, it's Facebook, Twitter. And then Wellspring, obviously. And if you can't find it, you can just message. And always message me or if someone wants my phone number. I mean, sure. I, it's all out there. I'm easily, I'm easily findable. So. Thank you, Neil. And thank you for all the contributions that you've made to Overland Journal as well through the years. And we look forward to you having you in the magazine. I've got an idea for you. <laughs> I love it. I love it. This content is brought to you by Overland Journal, our premium quality print publication. The magazine was founded in 2006 with the goal of providing independent equipment and vehicle reviews, along with the most stunning adventures and photography. 
We care deeply about the countries and cultures we visit and share our experiences freely with our readers. We also have zero advertorial policy and do not accept any advertiser compensation for our reviews. By subscribing to Overland Journal, you're helping to support our employee-owned and veteran-owned publication. Your support also provides resources and funding for content like you are watching or listening to right now. You can subscribe directly on our website at overlandjournal.com. We appreciate everyone for spending time here as well. Yeah, thank you for coming. Very much appreciate it. And Neil and I will be around for a few more minutes. If you've got any questions for for Neil or myself, uh, we'd love to entertain them. And we thank you all for being here. 